to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seske. Today, I'm thrilled to join Dave Monahan, CEO, founder of Clear. Dave, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. So today, I'm thrilled to discuss a whole litany of incredible topics, mostly around structuring great companies. Dave is a serial entrepreneur. He actually cut his teeth in some of the most incredible software and technology companies known to man, including our defense departments and Microsoft. So what I thought would be really fun today is to start off with a story, one that Dave told me just earlier, and it is a perfect representation of how we're going to run through this podcast, talking about what great transparency can lead to in terms of accountability and how structuring organizations can really, really matter in terms of building great firms and of course, we're going to talk about data mobilization and how important data is to the modern CFO and how important it's been in guiding all of Dave's decisions through his entire career. So Dave, if you wouldn't mind opening up with this incredible story in your early days, very, very early days at Microsoft, I think it'd be a great place to start. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, When it happened, I didn't think it was such a great story, but looking back, it actually was a, a key moment probably in my career. But uh, so... I had been working at uh, North Grumman for some period of time, like you said, on the defense side. We'll talk about that later. But I had just joined Microsoft. I was basically the – think of me as a financial manager, business analyst for the person who was running for, for Microsoft, all of Canada and the central part of the U.S. And this was in the crazy days of Microsoft where they were just printing money basically by shipping CDs and DVDs and things like that. So – uh, a weekend, and every year, each one of the subsidiaries would have to go in front of Steve Ballmer, who was at that time, he was about to become the CEO of Microsoft. And you'd have to present your business to, to Steve and a couple of his cohorts. And it was a 12-hour session, and they would drill into every piece of data you had. And I'll, I didn't tell you this story, Andrew, but at one point in the day, somebody gave uh, Steve a spreadsheet and it was, I would guess there were 500 to 700 numbers on this spreadsheet. And within, I'd say, 30 seconds, he found one that was wrong, one of the numbers was wrong. And he said, hey, that cell was wrong. And he was right. But anyway, going back to the story, so on the weekend, I really don't know a whole lot about Microsoft. I obviously don't know a lot about the details of all of Canada and the central U.S. and how they're performing. But to kick off this 12-hour day, the person running that area asked me to present the first 10 minutes of the presentation in the first 10 minutes, it's customary to show Steve what's going well, what's not going well, and just sort of give a high level overview of uh, what's going on in your subsidiary. So within a minute of me talking, he's starting to, he, he, back then he, he actually did have a tie on, he took his tie off, he messed his hair up, within five minutes his shoes came off, he was rubbing his face, and then he was graceful enough to let me complete my discussion over my presentation and when I was done, his first words to me were, I hated that presentation. <laughs> <laughs> so remember I'm in front of Steve and his leadership team and all the leaders of the group I just joined. And so he goes, let me tell you why. And he said, you presented a number of problems. You did not give me any solutions. I think I was 29 or so at this point. And then that one for me was, all right, I will never, ever do that again. 
And but if I'm going to go into presentation any anytime and anywhere, and if I'm ever going to present any kind of issue or problem, I will not only have a solution, but I'll have the data to back it up. So it was in a very mild way to put it, it was a baptism by fire at Microsoft. They love baptism by fire. They would throw people in and let them sink. Their typical sinking period was about six months. They said, we'll throw you in. You're in six months, you're going to drown and you're going to learn to swim. And it was an incredible place to learn, given that. So there were certain aspects of your time at Microsoft that are really important to how you formulated the structures of the companies that you wanted to run. What were some of those key either pillars of uh, culture or what were some of the, you know, they're definitely, baptism by fire has mixed results, unfortunately. Learning, you were obviously somebody who could swim, but what were some of the takeaways in terms of how you wanted to build companies that you learned early on? Yeah, so there's probably a few things. The first that became really, really, really clear to me, and I guess pun intended, was transparency was critical to Microsoft's success. They shared everything. I was, it was the first time I'd been in an organization where you could get information about anything within the company. It was very open. Like these presentations we would do about, you know, there was, I can't remember the exact number, maybe 30 or 40 quote unquote subsidiaries in Microsoft at the time. I could go get a hold of all their presentations and look at all their data. And they would, the company would post results on a weekly basis. And you could dig in and take a look at as much detail as you wanted. With that transparency, though, there came uh, responsibility. So they assumed, okay, if you have all that information, I'm mobilizing you to do things and take risk. And so the second culture piece uh, that came from Microsoft for me that I instill in every company I'm at is try things. Always try moving forward. It's okay to fail. And I know this is sort of a common term now, but back then it was sort of new for me. It was good news travels fast, bad news travels faster. And if you are, you know, something doesn't work, try things, experiment. If it doesn't work, kill it fast. It was really important to try, but also kill when needed. And so that was another thing is, you know, just bringing that sort of culture of experimentation to the companies uh, that I'm with. And then the other piece, so both of those items need support from a data infrastructure standpoint. So you don't want paralysis analysis or analysis, or sorry, paralysis by analysis, but you want data and information to support where you're going and the decisions you're making. And so every company I'm in now is, okay, what's the data behind that? What's the information behind that? We might not have it perfect, but if we can get the 70 or 80% knowledge base for a given decision, that's good, let's go. Make the decision off that data and go, but always have data whenever possible. Absolutely, and for those listening who didn't understand this clear reference, David, if you could spend just a moment on what clear is, for those who don't know about the dental company that you've created, it's really truly a unique marketplace that has been unearthed by data mobilization. And we'll touch on this a number of times throughout our conversation, but just as a quick overview, can you let people know what you're working on right now and maybe how it was, uh, how you're using some of these pillars that you just described around transparency? Sure, so, so what Clear is, is- it's a better way for uh, dental practices to offer care to their patients and for patients to purchase care from dental practices. So I think everybody knows about dental insurance and probably either have it now or had it sometime in the past or at least looked at it. And when you run anything into dental insurance, the issue is they're basically a middleman providing no value 
between the dental practice and the patient. It's not insurance. So actually, dental insurance is the exact opposite of insurance. If you have major issues, your costs go up under dental insurance. They don't go down. They're basically dental insurance is structured so that you get your cleanings, exams, x-rays, and then anything on top of that, you'll get a discount, but it caps like in $1,000 $1,500 a year, and that's to protect the insurer so they, you know, dental insurer so they can sort of keep as much of that premium as possible. So it's a, a bit of a parlor game, uh, dental insurance is. And it ends up costing the dental practice a lot of money and patients and employers a lot of money. So we, we looked into it, and obviously collected a lot of data, did market research for six months. And what we decided is what the dental space needed was an open marketplace where dentists and patients can connect directly without a middleman in the way. So we created a platform that enables dental practices to design care plans for their patients. And these care plans can be different because one practice might be, you know, tailored towards older patients, but another one might be tailored towards younger patients or even kids. And there can be a mix of all those things. But the net is the care plans are designed by the dentist for their patient base. And then the patients pay a subscription to the dental practice, a simple subscription could be $25 a month, $30 a month. And they get pretty much everything that's in insurance. You get your exams, your cleanings, uh, your x-rays, and then you get discounts off of other treatment. But it costs about 30 or 40% less than dental insurance. Wow. And it also has like no, there's no annual caps, there's no deductibles, there's no waiting periods. All that stuff's going away because we've gotten rid of that middleman. There's no reason for that middleman to be in the way. And once you get rid of that middleman, get rid of all the waste and inefficiency. So, yeah, so your point is basically connecting patients with dentists and it's the sort of the data infrastructure uh, sort of brings those two together in, uh, in all kinds of different ways. And we use that data, by the way, on the back end to help dental practices understand their patient base and how profitable the practices are and all kinds of different things. But uh, it's really a data infrastructure at the end of the day. So... You were basically resting on your laurels when you created this company, right? You took a big, long vacation, took a few years off after your last company. Is uh, We've got exciting news that it's being uh, it's going public. It's very exciting. Uh, we're going to have to discuss how you took you know this lofty, big break, as many serial entrepreneur types do. You know, so when was the advent of this company in relation to FitLinks, which was a leader in the wearables market and another great source of really unique data that just had never been mobilized. Yeah, so to, to stitch those together, I spent, I can't remember, seven or eight years at Microsoft, uh, ran a number of their businesses. I enjoyed the time and learned a lot, but I'm an entrepreneur at, at heart, so ended up leaving and joining a company called FitLinks. And at the time, the company was focused on putting uh, computers on top of fitness equipment. So if you went into a gym, you could collect your workout data. It was interesting, but what I wanted to do is take the company closer to, can we collect uh, data off the body? So we started creating sensors that could track your activity. Like a lot of things out there, you know, nowadays, Fitbit, things like that. This was well before any of those. We would, you know, have sensors collect data off uh, for activity, but also we created sensors that could take data off your body. There's a patch we created uh, that can take data off your body and then send it up through a network, wireless network, and where it can be used by healthcare providers, fitness providers, and things like that to help uh, people either get more fit or get healthier. But from the, I, we can talk about that uh, as a separate subject, but that was, I ended up selling that company to a medical diagnostics company. And to your point about taking time off, my plan was that, so it was March, 
when I sold the company in 2016 and was planning on taking some time off, relaxing, enjoying the summer and things like that. But within a week or two, somebody asked me to go to talk to an investor who had invested in some dental practices and I knew nothing about dental at that time. And so I just had a casual meeting with this person and that uh, was got intrigued because he was telling me a few things like how hard it was to run a profitable dental practice, how most people don't come in for dental visits, like only 50% of Americans actually get a dental visit each year. And he was just talking about the right tape and the issues. And so I decided at that point, well, I want to dig in on this. So I'd say my break was about two weeks before I started digging in and figuring out clear. It wasn't until 2017 that we incorporated clear, but in 16, uh, March, April 16, that's when the idea started percolating. So, right. Not necessarily a large vacation time after a mountain load of work, but there are just some people who are built for it. So I think that you probably fall into that category as a lot of these, uh, that product was probably really health oriented and creating marketplaces is obviously a heavy data driven world. There's just some personalities that can handle that kind of workload. And it sounds like you're one of those people uh, and an incredible entrepreneur. So when you were leaving FitLinks and this two weeks time passes did you celebrate did you take a few minutes or because uh, it sounds like you only took about 10 but uh did you do any big celebratory uh you know walk around the block or something we actually did nothing it's funny <laughs> you that. i mean i hadn't reflected back but no i mean i was still actually employed by fitlinks because we were doing a transition right it was a six-month transition uh to announce in a new company so i was still the ceo of fitlinks when I started clear. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm due for a break. I haven't taken any, any vacation for that. Let me tell you why I asked. It's, just, it's really important for, I think, early stage companies to celebrate the right things, right? If you consistently celebrate new opportunities and they aren't acted upon, then that can create kind of a loop of, you know, a direction you may not want to go in. So choosing kind of what and how to celebrate success is always something I like to talk about with leaders of organizations because I think it trickles down. I know that uh, when a lot of the weight is on your shoulders, you don't necessarily celebrate as much as you should for a team, but kind of bringing this full circle into some of the pillars of early Microsoft days and baptism by fire and creating a transparent environment, you know, at clear now, you have a handful of, you know, senior leadership and a number of employees. How do you choose what to celebrate with all this great data, you've got so much more clear of a pathway of growth. Uh, how do you put those hallmarks in terms of outside of just, you know, an acquisition like FitLinks? Um, you know, how do you celebrate those things and what are they composed of? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And as you probably, you know, for my answer, you probably figured this out. I am not the best at figuring out when to celebrate, but my team is. And so... You know, a big part of how we run Claire and any company I'm in is it's not me making all the decisions. It's me asking others to sort of step in and take responsibility for certain things. And so one person on my team is in charge of so making sure we are celebrating and taking a break and, you know, making sure everybody feels, you know, is having fun and enjoying themselves. So. What he's put in place is once a quarter, we actually go off site. Now, obviously, the pandemic has had an issue. <laughs> it's caused an issue with this. But prior to the pandemic, and we're going to start it up again as soon as everything's back to normal, 
is once a quarter, we go out and do something. And it can be all kinds of different things from bowling to axe throwing to, you know, just going out and having a nice day together. And so we make sure that's part of our culture is that we're willing to relax and enjoy each other and go out and see each other on the personal side. The other thing we do is we find the milestones in the company that really matter and we celebrate those. We just passed one. I don't want to give it out because, you know, from a competitive standpoint, I don't want people yeah, outside of quick notice, but we passed a major patient milestone on our platform and we celebrated that. And everybody actually in the company got a gift for us meeting that milestone. And the, we celebrate the you know, number of dental practices on our platform is another example. Um, we celebrate satisfaction. So we, if, you know, our net promoter score is a point of celebration and things like that. So we just make sure that they like, sort of wired in and it's a, it's a part of our culture as a company is to make sure that we are, we are taking a step back from time to time, relaxing and enjoying the, the milestones that the company achieves. Absolutely. And one of the reasons, I think it's probably important that we float back to strategy and the actual nitty gritty of financing innovation through the pandemic. It's not something I love to talk about on the podcast, but it's so relevant because I get to celebrate how strategic leadership actually looks live. And I just am curious as to, I know that this is a very digital platform and you might be in a better position than a number of companies to be able to handle maybe a you know complete shutdown of offices. I'm just wondering how you were able to lean on maybe some of the other leadership in your team or lean on the team uh, and kind of how you created some sort of solidarity and vision through what were inarguably very, very uncertain times? Yeah, it's a great question. So I actually look back on our reaction to the pandemic as a reinforcer of our culture when you know we, we all said and done. So probably a few things to sort of reference. So I had been through the the 2008 crash. And when I was at FitLinks, that's when I was running FitLinks. And I can't tell you how far that stressed our company back then. It almost broke us. We were on the verge of going down. And we got through it and became incredibly strong afterwards. And the, after that, that crash in 2008, comments I was getting back from my employees at that point was, hey, that was hell. But I learned a lot when we went through hell. And it was a major inflection point in my career. So when COVID hit, I and my COO, by the way, was through that 2008 crash as well at his company and almost took his company down. So we reflected on that when COVID hit and decided this was a chance to actually rally the company and that to position it as a major challenge where everybody's going to learn through the challenge, but we're going to have to sacrifice to get through it. So we basically rallied the team around, hey, guys, we're going to get through this and we're going to get, it's going to be some pain along the way, but we're going to come out relatively stronger than any of our competition. So on the other side of this thing, we'll be in a better position than we were prior to it. And then we heard, we just basically got feedback from everybody in the company and we had open, open sessions. And then that was, everybody was willing to sacrifice. So we ended up cutting salaries drastically. We ended up negotiating. I had my COO go out and negotiate with all our vendors and get lots of concessions from a cost standpoint uh, off of the services without cutting the services off. We actually implemented a thing in, for our dental practices where they could suspend their subscription. So if a patient was paying a subscription, we enabled dental practices to suspend the subscription until the pandemic passed and they can come back into the office. 
Wow. Um, and that was the goodwill we created was incredible, not just, you know, internally and the team coming to the other side of it and realizing that what we said prior to the crisis was true because they all learned and became stronger because of it. But the dental practices, the comments we got back from our dental practices was amazing that we were willing to cut off our subscription in order to, you know, help them and help their patients. And then that was on the positive side of the pandemic, like unbeknownst to us, it actually became a very, very sort of growth lever for us in that dental practices were shut for patients, which meant the dental practices had a lot of time on their hands. And so we continued all of our sales and marketing activities during the pandemic. And what we ended up doing is signing up a record number of dentists during the pandemic because they had time on their hands. They wanted to do, you know, what we were offering. They just had you know, the issue typically in the dental practices is just not having the time to get things done. And so we came out of the, out of the crisis with, I can't say the, the number, but a lot more dentists than when we went into it and came out in June of last year with record sales. Uh, coming off the pandemic. So that was just a, a lot, you know, the pandemic picked pick and shoot, you know, whatever, chose winners and losers randomly. And we happened to be on the winning side of it. And so, yeah, the, the net was we all came, the company and uh, financially, we came out stronger on the other side of the pandemic. I mean, I think one of the more impressive pieces, it sounds like you had the wherewithal to be stoic in those decisions in that time. I think it's really interesting that and really, really a hallmark of the culture you created to get that kind of buy-in from your team. Uh, was that something that kept you up at night going into that? I mean, it, it had to be stressful. So I'm just kind of curious as there's definitely an ideal size of a firm in which you can keep that buy-in and that close-knit relationship. And it's only if you can create a transparent environment where everyone understands the decisions that are being made. It's pretty incredible that you created that culture, everyone knew what was happening. And because of that, I think that is maybe a big piece. And I'm sure that you're an exceptional leader as well. But being able to communicate effectively with a transparent environment probably made those conversations so much easier. Absolutely. And I find when I'm transparent, actually stress goes down. So it, the first week or two of the pandemic was stressful for me. And I was trying to figure out exactly what we needed to do in order to survive it and come out the other side. But once we figured it out and locked in on the plan, which took us about two weeks, I was actually fine. I was comfortable we were going to get through it. And I think part of it was my experience with the, the 2008 crisis, uh, which caused a lot more stress for me personally than the pandemic. But the other was the ability to be transparent with everybody and share what was going on. Because what you learn is actually when you do that, if you have good people, you just got to make sure you, you know you, brought, you hire good people. They react and want to help. That's the amazing part of that. That transparency is you'll be shocked at how that mobilizes your workforce to do more and do things more things and do things better because they have information and they know where you're headed. They're bought into it and they will do amazing things to move a company forward. So yeah, it was uh, it was. A bit stressful, but then it sort of settled in and we just executed and felt good about it. That's incredible. Uh, and so I want to sort of shift gears a little bit into, uh, so we've talked about a little bit in terms of culture, transparency, creating a culture of accountability. But I'm sort of curious, we have such a unique group of listeners and a unique group of guests where they're either, you know, ranging from first time CFO or CFO at a startup 
all the way through to public company CFOs. Do you have any advice for people who are considering a leadership role in the finance team? Or would you give any advice to uh, aspiring entrepreneurs who want to create this culture in their organization? And, you know, what, what, is it like, what does that first step actually look like? Probably the first thing that comes to my mind is letting go. So a lot of people just hold on to information or uh, insight. And what I've seen is they are either afraid it's going to get into somebody's hands and like that they get then gets into a competitor's hands, or they're afraid that people are going to react when they see negative news negatively. And actually, I've seen the exact opposite: is that people will protect the information. And it, let's say some leak, it's not you know that whatever that is that information leaks is not going to cause damage as much damage as the positive you create by giving it to your company. But that is people uh, one. When they have data, can act smarter and execute better. And then the other is you'll be really surprised at, I guess, the level of engagement you get uh, from people and the buy-in you'll get uh, once they have information in their hands. And their ability to tolerate bad information, in my opinion, goes way up. There, people aren't looking, in my opinion, looking for uh, everything to be you know, you know, rainbows and roses. They want to contribute. They want to help. They want challenges. At least good people do, right? So if you're interviewing properly and getting right people in your company, they don't want to just sit back and just have somebody feed them information and say everything's good. That's actually a numbing thing that you know you're gonna numb your employees if you do that. So I actually found the best scenarios actually is when I share bad information and I see that you know people react to it and do something about it, feel like they're involved and have some control over you know negative uh, sets of information. So it's the letting go, I think, is the thing that I've seen over and over again of why people don't share and they hold on to things uh, tightly. And I, my, again, my opinion is that by doing that, they actually are hurting their company, they're not helping it. Yeah. It, one of the things that I want to focus on here is that that's super relevant for building company culture and for employee relations. One of the things that happens on this podcast every once in a while is that the CFO role has been somehow also in charge of investor relations, which is a really sensitive you know, communication flow outside of the financial reporting. There's a you know, very human EQ priority to be able to deal with those who you know, invested their personal capital or institutional capital into a new venture. Does that play into investor relations as well? I know that there are a lot of different types of corporate structures that dictate different demands from investors, but it has to feed into the, that same information flow, right? The more transparent you can be, the more patient the capital is. Is that right? Uh, probably to a certain extent. So I'm not an expert on disclosure laws and things like that, but I think obviously investor relations, you're a public company, there's rules you have to follow. And right. I'm not an expert in that. And so when I'm, I'm talking about sharing information, I probably cross you know, some borders or lines when I'm talking about sharing information relative to investor laws. But uh, what I've seen with my investors, so let me talk about my investors, which are private investors, and my experience in the past with private investors, is I share bad information from the get-go, from the very beginning of my relationship. Nothing, nothing in the world is perfect, right? There is not a business in the world that doesn't have a problem or multiple problems. And I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not going to tell them, that they'll never see an issue from me and I'll never have a problem with my business. But I do tell them is I will share my issues 
with you. But I will also have my plan for going back to the speed bomber conversation. I'll have my plan for fixing these right. issues. But I welcome your feedback on those. But all data is exposed. And I find that actually, you know, in a way, and this is probably look on the negative side of it, is it's disarming. It's like the investors, like if you're looking like, okay, I got to have this, ma- I got to manage investors and things like that. My managing of investors is all share with you. <laughs> like it, it, it allows me to, one, be free and do what I need to do, right, to run the business. But also sometimes, it's not all the time, but sometimes investors actually will have an insight uh, how to help me. Others, I've had plenty of venture CFOs uh, on this podcast will, you know, probably shake their heads on this one. Yes, is that I've had, you know, multiple investors come to me with ideas that were horrible. <laughs> and it's, I, I'll share information with them. They'll come back, interpret it wrong, come back and say, hey, here's what you should do. And I'll say, thank you very much for your feedback. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to do it. But, you know, thank you for your feedback. You got to discern, you know, what's good feedback and what's misplaced feedback. But I think the net for me on the investor side is sharing the information frees me and makes my stress go away and engages the investor in a way if they want to help, they can. It's up to them. And uh, anyway, I, I absolutely share as much information with investors as I do internally. Yeah, it's a really great suggestion for a first step in creating a culture of transparency is just start sharing, right? Just create a dedicated path and communication channel to do so. And it's interesting that you say that it frees you. Yeah, I kind of that kind of caught my ear because it's so stress relieving to know that you're not procrastinating. There's no outlying questions. You're already created a culture, and this is the way that you're going to do business and essentially communicate with them. That's really interesting. That it frees up a lot of stress and probably time for you to focus. And that has to be a big piece of how you have the uh, the time and energy to build great companies. So I think it might be fun to discuss a little bit about, uh, I have this question I've been asking towards the ends of most podcasts, and I think I'm going to try to scoot it up because it's always really interesting to hear some sort of feedback on this. And it is something that from your vantage point, you feel is just underestimated in the world. And we were sort of joking about this earlier, but I thought the response was worth uh worth sharing with our audience because it's a little bit more unique and not necessarily what I expected. Uh, but it'll be fun to compare answers across CFOs. Yeah, so you want me to dive in on what I have my response? Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Uh, so yeah, the question was, what's underestimated in the world? And my feeling is everything's overestimated in the world or it's sent to extremes at this point, right? So I started going through, I tried to answer the question and I was like, uh, and let's go through some things, right? AI or machine learning. Is that underestimated? No, actually, I think it's way overestimated. <laughs> so it's going to have an impact, and there's no doubt about it, you know, 5, 10, 15 years out. But what I've seen so far is it's pretty basic stuff. And it's not like right now, the, the hype machine is way overstating it. The COVID crisis, right? I mean, you had people on either extreme. It's either a hoax or it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the world. And then you start reading things about, uh, the Asian flu back in 1957 or the Spanish flu, which I think was like 1919 or 1920. And you realize uh, society uh, survived worse and they did it in a way that was less extreme on either side. It was much more moderate. And you can sort of go on and on, right, about things that are, in my opinion, either way overestimated or way underestimated. So 
my answer to the question is that I think we need more moderation in things. And it's probably not a surprise. I'm sure a lot of CFOs think this way as well, where we got to stop going to either side of an extreme and stay sort of consider both extremes, uh, but then make decisions that are more toward, towards the center, probably more towards the truth than either sides of the extreme. So, yeah, I think my answer to that question is I think too many things are overestimated. Right. And it's not like this is coming from a place that's not highly informed. I mean, you cut your teeth in your career with being a part of a global provider of defense systems surrounded by, and including you, some of the smartest people on the planet. This is not a, you know, an opinion. This is pretty well informed here. Uh, It's fun to think about how ridiculous uh, data mobilization has gotten in terms of both highly positive in terms of business building, but can also run away in a direction that makes absolutely no sense. Because if, uh, if there's data for anything, any opinion could probably be right in some sort of extreme with some data to back it up. It might not be good data, but actually that might be one more fun question to ask. When you're choosing on like for um, finance leaders who are listening, when you're choosing data to make strategic decisions, where do you find the most value and how do you go about doing so at Clear? Because I think a lot of the listeners are, I think the first step of creating a culture of transparency of just start sharing is really important. But in terms of, I know the company is uh, situated in a way in which its unearthing of data operates the platform. But how would you suggest getting started in terms of making strategic decisions and how to value certain pieces of data? I just think that your early career gave you an opportunity to not only work uh, with defense systems, but also you created a unique product at Microsoft, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, just uh, real quick, because I'm not sure I touched on it, but at North of Grumman, we did advanced uh, surveillance systems for fighter aircraft and also for drones, military drone trips. Uh, back, back then, this was like early 90s, nobody even knew about that they didn't exist. But, you know, we, we did that, and then Microsoft ran a number of their businesses, and one of the things my claim to fame at Microsoft was I brought outside data, market data, together with the internal financial systems to create opportunity maps for all the subsidiaries, and which really enlightened where the sales and marketing team needs to focus. But as far as data sources and how, whatever, where, how do I prioritize it's funny, I hadn't been asked that question before, but I think about the way I look at problems in a way, what, what probably what my core strength is. So I think of myself as somebody who can connect a lot of dots. And those dots are all over the place. So some dots are we go and talk to our customers and ask, what do you like about us? What don't you like about us? How can we do that better? Right? And they're going to give you a list of things from their perspective. That's the other thing. you got to understand from their perspective. It's really critical when you're considering different data sources. So great. I understand that. Some people would say, well, that's enough information. Let's go. No, it's not, actually. Customers don't know what they don't know. So that's one set of data is customers. The other set of data is we do a lot of market research. I actually have a market research firm. Uh, it's actually Finch uh, Research down in Philadelphia who will do studies. So one study when we first started Clear was a study of uninsured patients. Another study was of dental practices and how they operate and how they think. And then we did a study of employers and how they think about dental benefits. And great. So market research, that's another perspective, right? That's a third party collecting information and doing things like that. Uh, as part of that research, we actually did focus groups. So we would have employers come in, we would have dentists come in, we would have uninsured patients come in. And just to show you how I think 
so we had a moderator running one of the focus groups and I didn't like the way the moderator was managing it. So I actually stepped in the room, asked that person to leave and I took it over. And for me, that interaction of the focus group, it was through the charts valuable where I could just ask whatever questions I wanted of a group that was willing to answer openly, honestly. So we collected that information. And the third piece of information, so market research or, you know, whatever market analysis, you got customer analysis. And then the other thing I try to do is look about, look at the world outside of our market. So I do a lot of reading and I try to figure out where is the world headed and sort of where are, how can we sort of map to those macro trends and which ones make sense to us or whatever relevant to us, which ones aren't. And I, those three, you know, sets of data, I, I would be equally um, going in, but then I might during my decision process the way towards one or the other. And I don't know how to codify it. It's more like some part of it is a feeling or something would have resonated with me in one set of data versus another. Because um, a lot of times data will either conflict or not perfectly mesh, and you're just going to have to make decisions that aren't like sort of, hey, that's the data that says this, let's go do it. Actually, I think that's a mistake people made so a lot of times is the data said this, let's go do this, because you haven't considered these different perspectives of data and information. So. Yeah, so it's a messy answer probably to the question, but it's I'm constantly looking for those three sources of information uh, to try to figure out which path to take. Dave, that's why I love doing this podcast, because the amount of times I've heard, no one's asked me this question, but it's what I think about 24-7, uh, that I'm smiling ear to ear. That's a perfect answer. And you know what? It's really difficult because there's not a great source of consolidated insights and a community around a lot of these challenges and there easily could be so it's exciting to contribute your perspective in into that group and i think we couldn't possibly end on a higher note and i just wanted to thank you so much for spending time with me on the modern cfo podcast is there any way for people to reach you directly or anywhere you'd like to direct anyone to get in touch with clear so yeah it's interesting clear it's just Clear.com, K-L-E-E-R.com. They want to learn more about Clear. And to get a hold of me, it's real simple. It's my email, Dave, D-A-V-E, at Clear, K-L-E-E-R.com. Excellent. And this has been the Modern CFO Podcast with Dave Monahan. Thanks so much, Dave. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.